0: Welcome to Scoop Du Jour, Amy Dash. I am so excited. You are like one of a kind that we are having today. We've got reporter, producer, legal analyst, um, founder of League of Justice. That's quite the resume. And I would explain all of those things, but I think you can do a much better job. So I'm going to first thank you for being here and kind of ask you for a little elevator pitch about yourself. Cause I think sure. this is, you know, quite quite the resume, like I said, and kind of a, a unique um you know take on on journalism that that you have is quite a unique background,
1: sure, so I started out as uh, first I went to law school uh, with the purpose of becoming a legal correspondent down the line. Um, and I was a general assignment reporter for local news in New York for a number of years. And then, um, when I decided I wanted to start a family with my husband, I switched and I decided to go into legal analysis because I already had the legal background. And it just so happens I fell into sports through a recommendation of a friend. Um, I had already worked at CBS, uh, news. So I was then transferred over to CBS sports radio and I started doing the legal analysis there. On, you know, just the biggest cases whenever athletes would be arrested or anything would impact the game. And 10 years ago, when I started doing this, there really wasn't a niche of sports law entertainment. Mm-hmm. There were sports attorneys that would come on the radio and they would talk about you know, the legal intricacies of the cases, but in a very technical, legal manner. And a lot of that was lost on the average sports fan. And, you know, they come on, they promote their firms, but studying these cases, studying the evolution of sports law wasn't really a field back then. So I set out to sort of differentiate myself. And since I had the entertainment and the broadcast background to try to make these stories interesting, to try to make them educational and to try to just basically explain to the average sports fan, why these stories matter, when they can expect to see their favorite players back on the field, what does it mean when someone's arrested, will they be suspended, what do the NFL policies say, for example? And it was a big hit. And so um, for 10 years, I've been doing that and I founded leagueofjustice.com, which is the first ever sports law breaking news site devoted specifically to sports law stories because there's been such an intersection. Of you know social justice reform, athletes, and just you know even the larger stories that have come out of the different leagues really take on national importance these days for a variety of reasons. So, so that's about
0: me in a nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell, because there's so many things that you can um, we can talk about from what you just said. But one thing I picked up on was that now we're talking about social justice in sports more than ever. Yeah. And one thing I find really interesting as of late is that athletes are using their voices now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that it's more mm-hmm. now than ever, or do you think that they just feel more comfortable? What do you think is, is different now um, than it was 10, 20 years ago, 50 years ago? We did see, you know, some athletes stick up for what they believed in back in the day, but do you think it's more prevalent now? Uh, Perhaps
1: the coverage is more expansive now. I don't want to say that it's as prevalent as before or not, because I really don't know. But I know that there have been instances of, like, for example, um, kneeling. There was a basketball player that did a a protest similar to what Colin Kaepernick did, but it didn't get as much coverage. Maybe it did back in the day. But, you know, people forget. And I think a lot of times we see history does repeat itself and one of the things that I try to do with my coverage is really question the law and question the policies in the U.S. and the way our system operates, because a lot of times covering these stories just isn't enough to spur progress. And you really need people getting engaged in the topics. And I think that's the difference. I think now there's more engagement because of social media. People feel like their voices can be heard, like they can give their opinions, or they can even launch their own, you know, crowd funds fundraiser for things, uh, take on different social issues be connected with athletes and their organizations that are advocating for different types of reform. So uh, the engagement and the questioning and the discussion, open-mindedness, education can really lead to a lot of progress. And that's
0: one of the things that can stop actually history from repeating itself in a negative way. What kind of engagement do you see from sports fans when they learn about something that's maybe pretty complicated because it's has to do with something that has, uh, you know, a legal issue and then you kind of break it down. What kind of, you know, um, how, how, how have people responded to what you've been doing? Like, especially on social media now that it's, it's such a big thing for us. I would say 99% of the response to what I do historically over the past ten
1: years has been positive, and that's something I'm really proud of. I'm not going to knock how people promote themselves or their brands, but one thing that I have tried not to do is to, um, you know, make my coverage sexy. You know, in terms of showing myself in bikinis or cleavage or whatever. Like I dress conservatively because I want the focus to be on the content. I'm an attorney, but I don't want it to feel like you're being spoken to by an attorney. I just simply want to make the law accessible to people. So I really focus on the educational aspect of it, trying to make it interesting and entertaining. And that's the feedback that I've gotten. You know, the product I've put out there has been received really for what I intended it to be, which I'm excited about. And, Sure. Like, could I have gotten more popular and more engagement if I had taken a different approach, you know, and um, marketed myself a different way? Yes. But I've also gotten a lot of feedback from people who've said they appreciate that you know I can be a role model to maybe their daughters or um, even, you know, even there are even men who want to be sports law attorneys or want to be, you know, sports law broadcasters. Um, who have approached and said that they appreciated my content? So across the board, from like fathers, from men, from women, from mothers, from you know aspiring students,
0: I've gotten favorable feedback, which I'm really grateful for. I think that's such a good message, right? Like that you can do your job by just doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing it well. You. Yes, exactly. By which doing takes it well. A lot of preparation, by the way. You know,
1: I put a lot of effort into it, and I think that really shows. Uh, when somebody's doing a cursory read, maybe because they don't have time, maybe they're working for a big publication, and they have to cover a lot of different subject matters. But I can really focus in on sports law. So I can read the documents, I can decide how I want to fashion it, I can come up with new angles and do original reporting on it. And so that's the advantage of specializing in something that I'm grateful to have.
0: Yeah, I'm curious, the the day to day of there, you've broken a number of stories, but then just reporting on stories and breaking them down, something that, like we said, is is quite complicated at times. What goes into how you do this job? What's the day-to-day like? Luckily, I've been able to work with a lot of producers, uh, programming people in sports
1: and reporters and hosts that get it, that understand what sports fans want to know. But they also ask me really interesting questions that challenge me from a legal perspective. And so I've, you know, in the beginning, I was following the lead of the hosts. And I was really trying to answer their direct questions, but in a way where I could sort of intersperse, you know, some knowledge about the law. So people feel like they're getting their answers, but they're getting a little extra education, you know, nothing too much, nothing too technical or weedy because I don't want people to get lost in it. Um, and so through that process, I came to be able to anticipate what the hosts and the fans wanted to know. And, and so as I would approach the legal documents, it made it easier for me. Um, also, my broadcasting background, as I mentioned, you know, I was able to go through complicated things and law school. By the way, where you have to read hundreds of pages, documents, and narrow it down into short summaries, so um, I was able to read through things quickly. I, I'm able to find, you know, nuggets of information. I think where I stand out is that I really do try to enterprise. I really do try to look for an original angle. If I'm reading coverage that's out there, I'm looking for what's not being answered. What interests me the most? Uh, are people missing the lead here? Are they missing the best part of the story and going out and doing the legwork to try to find those answers? So that comes from me having a reporting background. My passion's always been investigative reporting and journalism um, before law, number one before law. So I have that experience and I know how to do it effectively. So being able to combine you know, both things was something that I really had to carve out for myself. It didn't exist. And as a woman in sports, it wasn't easy, but I did find that when I put the effort and the research and the ingenuity into my job and making myself different, creating a brand and a style for myself, very simple, straight to the point, um, you get the need to know, but you get a little you know, extra education and maybe some education on the history of these cases and how sports law evolves through these different uh, cases in the major leagues
0: Um, I think that's really, that's really been beneficial and it's been received well. That was my favorite thing, by the way, about media law was like the history and learning like why things are the way that they are nowadays. So one thing that I am curious about that you and I somewhat spoke about was um, NIL as it is now in the NCAA, something that is not being regulated at the moment. But what's your, I guess, opinion on that? And um, do you think that it'll continue the way that it is and kind of the way that it wasn't regulated and or was and now it's not? Um, what is your opinion just on NIL and how things are progressing in the NCAA? I've always been shocked that universities ever had the entitlement to
1: profit off of somebody's name, image and likeness and that, you know, athletes were sort of duped into signing away their rights through different contracts and uh, adhering to different and CAA policies, so on and so forth. Um, and so once the Supreme Court decision came out, I was like, this makes more sense to me because it's a property, right? Your name, image and likeness and you own it. You know, it's it's your face. It's your name. Um, and so I was glad that that was restored to athletes. I do think there needs to be uniform regulation. But the problem is whenever you have politics involved, you know, and legislative lawmaking surrounding something, there is a risk that there could be corruption from money. And I think even more so when it's concentrated at the local level, because you have people who are invested in their home teams in their state doing well and winning. And that's why I think it needs to go to a federal level. That being said, things that are regulated on the federal level are sometimes even more messier because you don't have people who are invested in it because uh, you have larger lobbying organizations reaching people. You have, you know, you know, the elements of re-election and things like that. And you have people embedded even at the federal level, the local level as well, who have experience, you know, in politics and then sort of go through that revolving door and they're hired by special interest groups and they know the ins and outs. And It's almost like a prosecutor who switches to become a defense attorney. They know exactly the way that a prosecutor thinks, right? So when they Mm -hmm. become a defense attorney, they know how to get sort of, you know, trick the system a little bit and get an advantage for their, or they have the connections in the prosecutor's office where they could get a special plea deal and things like that. You have the same thing in politics, where there are people who have worked for the government to regulate, now they want to make more money in the private sector. And because of that, they give special interest groups who are willing to pay them an advantage to get the laws written, even at the federal level, in the way that they want them to be. So, you know, it's a tricky situation, but I think it it should, there's also the question, sorry to go on a tangent here, but there's a question of, you know, then is there favoritism if you don't, if you don't have laws state by state, if you don't sort of uh, stop the university, if you do stop the universities from getting involved, is there a favoritism where only the best athletes will profit off of NIL versus okay. these collectives that we're now seeing where entire teams are able to profit? And there's a bit of a sharing of the money. Uh, but when you have the universities involved, you have more complications. So I I do think it needs to go federal, but I think... Uh, There's a lot of people that need to come to the table who are objective, who are specialists in different areas. And I think there needs to be education and a lot more collaboration to figure out a system that can work.
0: Another tricky situation that I want to ask you about before we throw some rapid fire at you and then let you go because you're very busy. Um, (laughs) The uh, tricky situation was um, Kyrie Irving in the Nets and the NBA and um, his post that you know was linked to an anti-Semitic film. Um, how do you think that was handled and what could have been done differently, if anything, there? It's a, yeah, it is a, a complicated
1: situation. I don't think that athletes should use their platforms to spread hateful messages in any way, shape, or form. I think there's a lot of misinterpretation and miscommunication on social media. And so you really have to be careful how you write things, what you write, what you retweet. And I do think that there is a higher obligation for people with a platform, especially athletes that children look up to, um, to represent their team. And I think because of that, they have to take into account, you know, the limitations in the policy, the team policies. And so I think the Nets have every right if they don't want certain messages to be spread by somebody who's representing their team, who's being paid by their team um, to discipline that player or to, you know, put them on the sidelines until they feel that they've handled the situation appropriately. I don't know about, you know, all the little ins and outs of the requirements and whether he met them or not. Um, there are a lot of people that are dropped from teams. There are a lot of owners that, you know, relinquish ownership of teams when there are signs that there may be in in this day and age, at least, you know, a racist or homophobic or xenophobic or whatever element to, uh, the, their beliefs, their personal beliefs. And, um, I do think people need to be treated across the board consistently. I don't think there should be favoritism and I think there just needs to be education about Empathizing with people and choosing your words carefully because you just don't know the situation of the people that are reading it, right? There are so many people from so many different walks of life. So, in this example, you know, Kyrie Irving may have really offended people whose relatives were Holocaust survivors, people whose families were murdered in mass uh, because of their religious beliefs. And I think, uh, especially, you know, if you are promoting. Uh, equality and anti-discrimination you should and you're an athlete and you have this oblig- this public obligation you should um you should be consistent with that you know i don't i don't like people who are hypocritical in the sense that they feel that you know their personal religion is being discriminated against or their personal race is being discriminated against but then they feel that it's okay to go and, and spread hateful messages about other people. Like you're either for equality or you're not. That's just my personal take on it. But I'm not, I don't know what his beliefs, I don't know if there was a miscommunication. You know, a lot of people are saying he's not anti-Semitic and he didn't mean it this way and it was taken out of context. And maybe that's true.
0: Yeah. Okay. Coolest interview you've ever done or most memorable or both? Oh
1: I covered a lot of crime uh, back in the day. So there was like a lot of, you know, dark subject matters. I wouldn't say those were cool. Um, I guess I really liked, I interviewed some celebrities and not that I have favoritism over uh, celebrity interviews, but I interviewed Jennifer Garner and she was just really sweet and down to earth. And I enjoyed that interview because she was just very warm and, and very friendly. And so
0: that was good. Um, so she's yeah. like how she puts off because she seems like that.
1: Yeah, it was, it was. She was like a Neutrogena spokesperson. And I think we were talking about um, their skincare products or something. But I really went off topic. I was asking her about mm-hmm. that at the time, you know, <laughs> I had to kind of push the envelope to make the interview good. But she was just very sweet and very kind. And I thought that was nice because we had never met before. I love that. And I was a news um, reporter. It wasn't.
0: I wasn't like a, yeah. a Walter style interview with her. So, no. I mean, everyone remembers someone who's kind to you. Exactly. Um, best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um,
1: I would say uh, don't weigh everything on a scale. My grandmother used to say that. You know, don't stress out about every little thing. Don't get offended by every little thing. This goes back to something that I strongly believe in and that's empathy for other people's situations. And I think, you know, when something goes wrong in your life or somebody's nasty or someone does something to you, rather than getting angry about what's been done to you and weighing that on a scale, you know, try to think, is there something going on in that person's life? Try not to take Mm -hmm. it personal, you know, try not to harbor anger and try to be empathetic to Well, you know, that's kind of sad that that person is struggling themselves that they would feel the need to hurt me or hurt somebody else. And I don't mean this in the judicial sense. I don't mean that you should be empathetic, you know, if somebody is like a criminal and, you know, hurts somebody else. I do think there should be justice for people's actions. But I think more in terms of people's own mental health, people's own, you know, positive outlook on life. They should try, you know, in smaller situations, less serious situations to not put everything on a scale.
0: I really like that. I haven't heard that before. And is that a piece of advice that you offer to those who look up to you or do you have a different piece?
1: I really don't offer a lot of advice to people who <laughs> look up to me. Uh, I try to offer advice to family members. They of course don't listen to me. But um, <laughs> And I, and I very frequently offer advice that I don't, practice myself, you know, like oh, I'll be sitting on the couch yes. eating a bag of chips, telling my husband he's got to hit the gym, you know, because he's stressed out. And really <laughs> the person who needs to hit the gym is probably me. So, uh, I'm, one of my nicknames is queen hypocrite and around the house, but, um, I don't, I yeah, it. I don't try to put advice on people unless they ask me for it. Uh, cause I do think that, um, that, uh, solicited advice is more valuable than unsolicited advice.
0: Well, and that, that was advice. Know, by example,
1: I've learned that doing things yourself and leading by example is more effective than telling other people
0: what to do. That's a great one. Okay, we have to let you go. But before we do, where can everyone find you?
1: Uh, Twitter a- at Amy TV. Um, I'm on CBS Sports Radio and Odyssey, local affiliates, whenever there's big sports law news. And then leagueofjustice.com. And then lastly, I know you and I talked about this. Yes. Earlier, yeah. So uh, for the holidays on my Twitter at Amy TV and on Instagram at Amy TV, um, I have a link for an Amazon gift list. This is for a very specific shelter in Texas that's housing foster children for the holidays, toddlers to teens. Uh, they're in need of a lot of basic items, you know, socks, underwear, clothing, deodorant, to- different toiletries, and then some wish list items that the kids wanted just for fun, toy cars, things like that. So I'm passionate about that topic, foster care, and Texas has one of the worst systems. This is 32 of the thousands of children that are out there. If we can get more donations to the Amazon wish list, the link is on my Twitter. I'm going to open it up to the 250 kids that are in this network because I know the people running that network. And I know the gifts will get hand-delivered to those children. I trust them. So um, hopefully we can get more donations so we can expand the list to include the 250 kids, which is just a small portion of the kids in Texas in foster care. And there's half a million kids in foster care nationwide. So if you have a local organization
0: that you trust, try to get some you know, basic necessities to those kids as well. That's amazing. And we're going to share um, the link as well. So thank you for telling us about sure. that. And um, thank you so much for your time. I wish we had more okay. of it. No problem. Take care. Thank you.